Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the other two co-hosts of the show. They're with me now. Hey. Hey, you guys. How are you? Evan, who's on the uh, who's on the program? There's a lot going on in this week's episode. My guests are Bradley Hope and Tom Wright, uh, who were both uh, highly regarded reporters for the Wall Street Journal. They wrote a book together a few years ago called The Billion Dollar Whale, which is about a massive fraud in Malaysia and one of the guys behind it, whose name is Joe Lowe, who is still on the run to this day. But in the past year, they have left the Wall Street Journal, started their own independent journalism outfit, which is called Project Brazen. And it produces uh, newsletters, documentaries, podcasts. They have a show, a podcast that I really liked called Fat Leonard. That's about a guy who single-handedly corrupted large parts of the American Navy. They have one just out called Karina and the King, which is about an affair that brought down the King of Spain. They're putting out a lot of stuff at the same time. Bradley also has a new book out himself, which is about uh, a guy who tried to undermine slash overthrow the North Korean government called the Rebel in the Kingdom. So there's a lot of names coming at you. We covered a lot of stuff. I basically wanted to know, how are they juggling all this at the same time? And it was fun to talk to them. One thing to remember, Bradley is the one with the American accent. Tom is the one with the British accent. That is the kind of guidance that I need. Just <laughs> simplify it for me in this manner. It's great. It's also great timing for a show about a former uh, billionaire uh, on the run. Like this is, uh, I assume that you booked it before uh, the events in the last couple of weeks, but uh, very, very exciting. I, uh, I have uh, enthusiastically followed the Joe Lowe story for, for many years. This sounds like a uh, somehow hour-long lightning round interview truly Evan. truly it's like you're just gonna do topic 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 we make this show uh with our friends at vox thanks to them now here's evan with bradley hope and tom wright bradley tom welcome to the long form podcast thank you thank you good to see you guys Looking back over your various partnerships over the years, uh, including doing a lot of reporting together, writing a book together, now you have Project Brazen, a business together. I'm interested in how you guys uh, work together. I wanted to start by just talking about how you originally started reporting together at the Wall Street Journal. So the story that became the book, where did the reporting start and how did you guys first connect? Well, I think it was a pretty unlikely partnership because Tom was in Hong Kong and had a much cooler job at the Wall Street Journal. And I was in New York and I, I had a very specific super financial job. 
But when I read the first stories that Tom did, I immediately saw that I had a kind of interesting opportunity to help because there was a big portion of that fraud had connections to Abu Dhabi where I had lived for five years. So I just actually sort of emailed Tom and I kind of contributed some information and then I just couldn't help but try to dig a little deeper. And um, the good thing about the journal is it's very meritocratic in a sense. So since I was making a difference, I was allowed to keep working on the story. And Tom and I started talking on the phone and and um, it just became a very natural relationship. And we would be talking every night and every morning because he was in Hong Kong and I was in New York. And so we, were, we became this kind of 24-hour operation. You said meritocratic. Is, is that a normal process at a place like the Wall Street Journal? Like, Tom, you broke originally parts of this story. And would your impulse be, yeah, whoever wants to get a byline and come help me, please do? Or that there's no sort of like... I don't know. This feels like this is a little bit my territory. Well, I mean, you know as well as anyone, journalists are very territorial animals. <laughs> so, so I, I do remember getting the first phone call from from Bradley. I was riding a Hong Kong tram in the summer. It was a very hot tram ride to work because these things are not air conditioned. And this guy calls me up, and you know, you know Bradley. There's not much small talk with him. He goes straight to the matter. And I was like, "Who is this guy? I have no idea who this is." <laughs> I mean, I read read his stories, whatever. It's a big newspaper. But then very quickly on that call, realized that this guy's like, well, not fucking around, basically. You know, he's found out stuff about this story already, right? And it's going to be very useful. So we we immediately started to, to work together. And for me, it's been a life-changing partnership because, you know, we all don't work well with everybody, right? There's, there's certain people that you just, for whatever reason it is, you work very well together. And for me, Bradley's been, a, been you know, it's a, it's a lifetime partnership now. I know it because we just complement each other. We have different skill sets. We can disagree without, like, I mean, pretty vehemently, but no shouting, right? Um, and that's, I think that's a very powerful thing to have if you're building a business with somebody because you can say, look, I don't agree with this. And, and it's never, there's never like an undercurrent of we're talking about something else. And that has always been like that since the beginning with him uh, when we first started reporting on, on 1MDB. It's, it's just ends oriented, you know, so that's been great. And do you have different reporting styles in some way? Is like one of you more into documents and one of you is more into calls or is one of you more the charmer and the other one's more aggressive? Is there some breakdown where you split? Um, I think we both have a pretty broad range of techniques we use for stories, but definitely Tom did things in, in our work together that I was just like totally taken aback by how well he did it, how well he pulled it off. And and Tom's one of those journalists that like, I remember one time we knew that Joe Lowe's yacht was in Thailand. Explain a little bit who Joe Lowe is if people haven't haven't read The Billion Dollar Whale. Oh yeah, Joe Lowe, he was the he's the kind of mastermind of the 1MDB scandal and and we were tracking his yacht all the time because it's easy to track a yacht. And I persuaded Tom to go to Thailand because it was kind of like it seemed like there was something going on. It was kind of near the port, there was maybe a party going on, we didn't know exactly. And a lot of times you send a reporter somewhere like that and they just come back with nothing. But Tom's never come back with nothing. So even on that day, he sort of like talked his way into the, the harbor master's uh, office. And then at one point, he sent me pictures of the receipts and where the bank accounts were from and everything like that related to that yacht. You know, it's like it was an amazing kind of get. But it would be very hard to guess that you would come back with that, you know? Yeah. I mean, for a while, I can remember every time there was a story in the journal that I was like, oh, man, this story both feels like a little more narrative and it feels like. I was jealous of the story, like, oh, I wish I'd found that story. It was you guys. And I'm interested in what your process was when you were still at the newspaper. And I want to talk about what it is now. But 
for for finding these stories? Like, were they coming naturally off your beat, or do you have sources and radar for sort of bigger narratives within whatever you were reporting at at the time? Well, we didn't initially break the one MDB story. That it actually came out in a Malaysian newspaper called The Edge and a, and a blog called The Sarawak Report. One of the things I think is crucial to getting the breaks in journalism that you need to get is to just be in the game. So the first time anyone figured out there was a problem with 1MDB, this fund, big fund in Malaysia, was when Goldman Sachs were making a ton of money selling bonds for the fund, money that didn't make any sense. And Gary Cohen, who, who was then you know number two to Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman and went on to be Trump's economic advisor, he was showing off about the amount of money they were making to reporters over lunch in, in New York. And this was going you know, way back before we got involved, Bradley and I. So we knew there was a story, but you couldn't quite figure out. And every journalist has this. You sort of sit there at your desk going, how am I going to, what's the next step here? And Bradley's brilliant at this, and, and I've gotten better at it over time. It's, it's just do, do something. Uh, we had you know, great editors at the journal, Ken Brown and, and Paul Beckett and uh, Patrick Barter, who would be very supportive of this approach. Just do, because if you do something you're in the game and then you, you, you know chances of making a step forward are improved and we did a front page story about um this is after jolo's name's already in you know the, the edge in malaysia and we did a front page story laying out how the prime minister of malaysia had used this fund as a slush fund um you know we took the ball forward a little bit we made a you know a yard gain or whatever it is and then we got lucky because at that point somebody inside the malaysian government a very senior person wanted to leak the prime minister's bank accounts and our front page story was out there at that time. And so we got that lucky break and then then we were rolling, you know, so it often works like that. Yeah, I would say also is, um, you know, after one break, you have to keep making your own luck. So you, you can't rely on that first source. You know, that was something else. But, you know, at the journal, we were writing mostly what's called leaders, L-E-D-E-R-S, which is the long form, a daily story on the front page. And um, those are really hard to do at the journal and and they take a lot of time. There's like so much editing. But one of the philosophies we had in which we brought with us to our, our new life as Project Brazen is just always go for the big story. And don't be afraid that it's a big story because there, there will be a way into that story. And most people who are looking at that story and thinking it looks scary and big are thinking about going through the front door or going through the, the obvious path. But, you know, for example, I wrote this book with Justin Sheck about Mohammed bin Salman, and we had the question, how are we going to really reveal something different about this person? And we just set off on 10 different journeys, some of them completely improbable, some of them obvious. And the ones that got us there in the end were the kind of unexpected ones and almost the ones that are comical. Like, for example, just sending enough messages on LinkedIn to people that were in some way associated with the story. Sometimes this is the best way in, you know? When you guys set out, you report together, you write together, you're writing these stories, and then at some point, you decide to write the book together, which is more a business partnership. So do you remember when you first made the decision to write a book together, sort of what went into that? Did you sit down and say, okay, for this to work, here's how the writing process is going to have to go, here's how the reporting process is going to have to go? Did you map it out or just jump in? We just jumped in. It came very organically out of our daily work at the Wall Street Journal. And uh, we both got book leave. You know, we didn't take a lot of book leave. I think I took four months and Bradley took around the same. So we were 
actually, this was one thing we learned in the process was to be, be very, very effective and fast in what we do. And we think this is crucial for our, our business. And we can talk about that later, you know, like how, how long the gestation period is in Hollywood and how it could be much faster and much more efficient. And so we're thinking a lot about that these days. But I think the reason we do think we're quite fast and efficient and still maintain a high quality is just because of what we learned at the journal and how we, how we crunched a book in a very short period of time. So a lot of things have gotten easier with tools like Evernote or you know, Google or whatever you use. We collaborated very, very effectively. One thing we learned doing, and you know, we do much better now, is timelines. Always start with a very, very detailed chronological timeline. I mean, you know that. Um, and it's like, without that, you just can't think, you can't structure your work. So we ended up having like a, a very, very long timeline for Billion Dollar Whale. And that, that then allowed us to portion out work to think about the holes in the narrative, to structure the, the, the narrative arcs. How do you layer in context in a way that doesn't seem like you're just adding it on? It's actually coming through some character's point of view, that kind of thing. And we, yeah, we, we, we were just a very effective team because, you know, Bradley was an expert on the Middle East. I've been based in Asia for all my career. So we, we just had different elements of the narrative we were working on. So it's pretty complimentary. And one thing I'd say is the shock of our lives was when we started trying to write the book, we realized that we didn't have anything to write about yet because everything we were doing in the newspaper was almost trying to break the fraud itself. It was like we did so much work on understanding the flows of money and getting the documents and things like that, but none of which were actually useful in the book. So in a way, we, it was a pretty like scary thought because we had to re-report the whole thing from the scratch and then also achieve some miraculous new interviews with people who were inside the room who could sort of paint the picture of the story. And so it, it was, again, the same sort of idea. We set off in many directions at once, and we got a hold of a few phone books. Well, one phone book you know, belonged to a key person in the story, and we just started calling every single person on there. And, and that was a huge revelation for us about, you, you may think you own the story in the newspaper, but when it comes to the book, you're starting from scratch pretty much. You got a phone book, like someone's little black book with all their contacts in it? No, this was a digital version. But there was, there was a lot of leaks in this case. And, and even the leaks themselves were, were like, each one of them was a crazy technical problem. So like the, the Malaysian leak was vast. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of documents. The leak from one of these other companies that involved, it was an entire company's email server. And so we had to figure out ways, we had to use software to be able to search. And we, and we ended up spending way more hours of our lives than you could ever imagine just looking through these documents. And then it was taking the phone numbers and then calling the person on the page that really made the difference, you know, especially for the book. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. 
The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. So you guys report and write the book, and then presumably there's this period where the book is waiting to come out, and you return to the journal, and the book ends up being a huge success, but you don't know that at the time. When was the first inkling where you guys thought, like, maybe we would be interested in leaving? I mean, you'd both been in newspapers for a really, or at the journal specifically, for a really long time. When did you get the first sort of hint or start talking about, what if we set up shop ourselves? What if we left? So when the book came out, you know, we were lucky enough, we were the last position on the New York Times bestseller list for one week. So that's like, it's the minimum you have to do to be a New York Times bestseller. You know, that was a great thing. And it really helped the book. I mean, it didn't do those huge number one bestseller numbers, but it had a much longer tail than many books because, you know, it's still selling now like it just came out really. So word of mouth was very important. I think, I mean, I don't know, we probably have different recollections of this, Bradley, but like my way of thinking of it was I was really burnt out from the process. You know, like Bradley was saying, we we do things like go through, Jolo's WhatsApp history or BlackBerry Messenger history for like five years to find the narrative gold dust we needed and that kind of stuff. And it was just exhausting. And I'd been at the journal for 20 years. I'd been at Dow Jones for 20 years. I was pretty tired. And then, you know, if you have a book that does well like that, you get offered quite good money to go do public speaking. And so that was something I wasn't allowed to do at the journal. You know, that's their policy. And so I left to do that basically and, and have a bit of time off because you can make money and not work as hard basically for a little bit of your, your career. <laughs> so I did that. And then, you know, and then COVID hit. And so that, that dried up overnight and I was like, okay, thank God I've done a bit of this already. Bradley and I had been talking sort of around that time, right. About, about what we would do if we were to do something together. And he was still at the journal. Yeah. I think also when you write a book, you have your first taste of what it's like to truly be on your own because a book editor may be like a great, mind for thinking through the structure and stuff, but that's not the same edit as an edit at a newspaper. So like one of those articles on the front page of the journal was definitely edited more than any book I've ever seen, you know? And so you really feel the the risk of it, but also the enterprise of it. And I think you get a little bit of an addiction. And, and in fact, I would say what brought me to Project Brazen eventually was that kind of age old problem journalists have where the last story just isn't good enough even we, even even a few days in, you're already looking for the next thing. And so to me, Project Brazen is like trying to satisfy my addiction for bigger, better, more number of projects all the time. You know, I just, I just, I have that hunger. I mean, the flip side of it you mentioned is you're out on your own from a legal perspective, from an editorial structures perspective. So how did you guys go about conceiving how you would approach kind of being on your own? Like any startup, if you if we were to meet ourselves when we first started Project Brazen, we would be like we would be so unimpressed by how little we knew back then. You know, our current selves, we just knew that we wanted to set off on our own, and we didn't even really have it all figured out by any means. And we had we had some friends in different companies that were interested in what we were doing and, and gave us support in some in some ways, but more like spiritual support. And we just knew that we could make this work if we just put our minds to it, basically. But in the beginning, we thought we should work for other people as a company. But then over time, we just grew 
more confident in the idea that we could do it more of it ourselves. And so when we started off, for example, in podcasts, we, we were seeking to sell our podcast to other companies, but then we realized that that's an equation that basically results in you working for them, you know, and becoming almost like an employee of a distributor. And so that's how we came up with the idea to convince investors to help us raise a fund that we use to finance projects. So we don't have investors in our company, really, but we have investors in projects. They have no say in those projects, but they have like, you know, a participation in it. That was the innovation that we came up with. Are they more in the vein of the old school documentary investor who's sort of like, I just want to support this work? Or are they in the vein of like, I'm getting a portion of this and whatever this becomes in the future, I want to make money on it? I think it's actually a mixture. I think all of them have an interest in this kind of thing. So they, they have a taste for it. And we, we met them in our career. But at the same time, we gave them exposure to a portfolio of projects. So on average, there'll be a, a better performance than like one project. But with a documentary, people usually fund it one by one, right? And so they're actually much more likely to lose all their money. But in our case, we think we've created something that's more investable. Let's talk a little bit about Fat Leonard to bring it down to something specific. And this is one of your first projects and it's like absolute barn burner. So just tell me first, how does this come about? You guys decide to set on your own. You're like, we're going to set up this business. Then what? I got lucky. <laughs> no, basically we, we decided we wanted to do, well, the, so the seed capital for this company is, was Bradley's book advance for uh, The Rebel in the Kingdom, which has just come out as a fantastic book. Um, and so we, we just basically started with one project each. So that gave us like, you know, the capital to to start operations. And then we decided we wanted to do podcasts because this is a way to really, uh, I mean, doesn't need to be said, you know, this better than anyone, but it's like a great way to test drive a narrative and, and do it in a way that can reach a larger number of people. Um, so we had a slate of projects we wanted to do. And the first one was this story about Fat Leonard. And the reason, for those of you who don't know the story, it's about a guy who was from Malaysia, just like Jolo, actually, from the Billion Dollar Well story. And he he sort of single-handedly corrupted the U.S. Navy. He was a, a contractor, so he supplied food, fuel, and security to U.S. Navy ships. And it's really a story about just the crazy, you know, we hear about the $800 billion in annual U.S. defense spending, but this is sort of personified in Fat Leonard because he's not an American citizen. He, he He's just a contractor. He, he does this stuff for the Navy, but he ends up living in a $130 million mansion in Singapore with you know, 20 luxury cars. I actually, I actually got called up by a billionaire who lived next door to him the other day and wanted me to come over, for, summoned me over for dinner so I could tell him all about Fat Leonard because this guy's a real businessman. He's like, how did this guy make so much money? Why did he have Lamborghinis and all this? Anyway, it's, it's more than that. It's a story about the misogyny in the US military. Uh, it's, it's a human story. Uh, Leonard himself is, has a fascinating history. Um, and then, you know, we got really lucky with this story because Leonard broke out of jail, broke out of detention a couple of months ago and went on the run. And he's now, he got arrested in Venezuela and he's part of this whole diplomatic wrangling. So that's really helped the podcast. Um, and that's something we try to do at Brazen. We, we, we like stories that have still got an ongoing element to them because, I mean, honestly, it brings free marketing for the story, you know, in a, in a world of 2 million podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you know, if, you're, if your guy goes on the run, it helps you a lot. Um, without marketing dollars. So <laughs> that's part of the way we've conceived of things. But that, but that's going back to your original question, that story came to me, actually, uh, somebody who I knew from the billion dollar whale uh, world, um, knew Fat Leonard, Leonard Francis is his real name. And Leonard wanted to tell his story because, you know, he'd been one of the longest serving cooperating witnesses in US history, he'd been arrested for, for this fraud in the Navy, he'd overcharged by 10s of millions of dollars. 
um, with the connivance of a number of Navy officers who enjoyed prostitutes and Michelin star dinners and all of this thing. And he sort of rightly, I believe, he thought that he had, was a scapegoat, that, you know, all these four-star admirals that had enjoyed, you know, the prostitutes and the, the dinners had not been sanctioned. And that there'd been a cover-up in the Navy, which I also think is true. And so that was why he reached out and we we sent him a podcast equipment to his home detention. He, he'd been allowed out of jail because he had cancer. So we sent him a, a podcast just like the one we're talking on now. And yeah, got, got all the audio from him. And, and it was a sort of a COVID project. I mean, when I listen to it, it's like the first time you hear his voice and he starts talking, you're like, I am listening to this whole thing. Like this guy, he's just incredibly compelling character. And the way he talks is so brazen, if I could use that term. He's so straightforward about what he did in some ways. But when he actually like plugged in the equipment and started talking, like, were you expecting that he would unfold this whole story for you? That he would actually like sit down and say like, yeah, this is what I did. No, I had no idea what, what was going to happen. And and you're right that we got lucky in a couple of ways. One is, yeah, he just, because he's sort of dying of cancer and had been in jail for so long, he was just very honest about how the corruption had unfolded. His whole point was corruption in, in Navy business is as old as the seas itself. You know, like if you were doing victualing in the Middle Ages, somebody was giving a backhander of, you know, nutmeg or whatever it was to the port authorities or the other way around. To get the business, you had to be corrupt. The people on the ships expected it. I think the Navy would say that's not true. Leonard was an aberration. He's very corrupt. But the number of people in the 7th Fleet, which is the big US Navy fleet out in Asia that got involved with him is incredible. You know, the whole chain of command from the top to bottom. And I think that came from this idea that with 800 billion in annual military spending, this is, who cares, right? This is not real money. It's nobody's money. We're putting our lives on the line here for the US military and we're not getting paid that much and so this is you know the prostitutes and the michelin star dinners i mean some some of the characters in the in the podcast took envelopes of cash right um those are the ones who went to jail but you know there are lots of others who who were in my mind on the on the corrupt side of the the gray line you know the gray zone that just never got sanctioned and then yeah of course leonard has this amazing voice which really helped the podcast he sounds a bit like he's trying to be marlon brando in apocalypse now so i don't know he's got this <laughs> And, and he's a confidence trickster, so he's a Malaysian, but he sounds like an American. He did all his voices for me. He can sound like an Indonesian or a Filipino or a whatever. That's the way he was. Fascinating character. Yeah. And there's this turn in the show. I don't give away the show, but there's a point at which the show kind of turns the spotlight on his treatment of women and the way that folded into this whole scandal, even his treatment of like his wife girlfriends and you confronted him with that and i'm interested in the backstory of like both that decision to turn the show that way but also what moment did you choose to challenge him because obviously you wanted enough tape i would assume to like make the whole show and then when did you decide okay now's the time when i'm going to ask him this stuff so leonard is a very charming guy you know if you listen to the podcast you know, partly you want to structure narratives in a way that you don't hate the main character, right? It's, it's true of films and TV shows and the, and the kind of podcasts we make. You know, your uh, French Deception is very much like that. You know, you have these characters that you almost root for at one point, even though they're doing illegal, illegal things. Len Leonard, you know, I mean, I don't want to overstate how charming he is because he does, he is misogynistic from day one. You know, of my conversations with him, he would talk about mistresses is how he would term his girlfriends and he would talk of them like possessions. But, you know, he has this, he has this, um, 
this charm, which he used on, on the Navy, right? Like this, I, I'm bigger than life character. He'd take people out and make them feel like they were the center of the world. And that was, I think it's common trait to many con artists. I did very, you know, maybe out of the 25 hours, a few hours in, I started to get sick of this guy, right? Because I figured out what he really was. And I had to keep talking to him every day for, you know, my 2 p.m. in Singapore, where I live in midnight in San Diego or whatever it was where he lives. And we talk for hours and hours and hours. And you know this, Evan, you have to bottle up your personal feelings when you're trying to get stories, right? Or, you know, find out what happened. And so it was really only when we were right at the end of the process that I challenged him on a number of things. One was the treatment of his own uh, girlfriend and what he did with his own children, which is shocking and still unresolved, by the way. Um, and then, you know, how the Navy treated women as well. And so I challenged him at the very end, very, very final time I talked to him and I've never talked to him since. So I think that was the only way to do that because I call him a misogynist at one point. And I think after that, there was not much desire to talk to me again. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's how it worked. He decided to to implement a different plan, which was rather than talking to you to plan an escape from his, his home detention. That, I mean, that was just an unbelievable development, just from a marketing perspective. Yeah, from a marketing perspective. Well, look, I mean, as I said, like at Brazen, we have these three things that we, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's what we think of as when we're deciding what projects to do. You know, people are pitching us projects, or we're doing our own projects. It's like, happening now is one of the three things, you know, great characters and high stakes. You know, we want stories where people think, well, I can look this up on Google and find out more about it. You know, this, these people are around now. This is part of my world. And, you know, the stakes for Fat Leonard are high because they're about this world that happened after September the 11th. He, he would never have made the money that he made without September the 11th. He was doing stuff like charging a million dollars a visit of a ship to string up some steel barges around them to stop supposed Al-Qaeda Al attacks, right? So I think listeners or readers, whatever it is, they like to feel like the show has relevancy for the world they're living in or let them see inside the room of how the world really works. That's the other way we think about it. And so, yeah, Leonard went on the run just, uh, I think it was two months ago. And, you know, Bradley and I were actually able to find out where he was on the run before the U.S. authorities, I think before they even knew because of some sourcing that we had, we found out that he was in Venezuela we reported it on our newsletter, Whale Hunting, and then uh, three days later, he was arrested by Venezuelan authorities. <laughs> so he's now in Venezuela. He made a massive uh, miscalculation because he was trying to get to Russia. You know, we say in the podcast about how the Russians had, had identified him as a potential asset because he knew all about where U.S. Navy ships were, and he was actually directing U.S. Navy ships himself. Um, and I think he must have figured that Venezuela was a safe transit point because of its bad relations with the U.S. or lack of diplomatic relations with the U.S. But little do you know, there was a thawing going on, which we're in the middle of right now. U.S. has just lifted its arm embargo on Venezuela. And Leonard, Leonard got arrested trying to fly to Russia. So he's now waiting there. And it's become part of this whole diplomatic uh, situation where the Venezuelans want some people back and Leonard's a bargaining chip and all of this. So. Yeah. And one thing I'd say is, you know, even though Tom and I, we created this company and we, we've learned a lot about business and we, we have a lot of ideas in business. In reality, as you can see behind you, we're still, you know, we're, we're two journalists working out of the presently at the London Bermondsey Biscuit Factory in a room full of books and, you know, maps of relationships and things like that on the wall. At the end of the day, we're still at our core journalists. And so even as Fat Leonard was going, we didn't know where it would go. We started off just thinking this is a pretty amazing story. And, and, and we always like to look for stories that, that reveal something about the world that's hidden. 
And so that's kind of always been our, our guiding principle. And then we try to make it work because maybe you'll start a project and halfway through Leonard stops talking, what would we do? We would, we would have still continued that project. It would have just taken a different direction, you know? So we're, we are at the, at the core, just still looking for a great story and we'll, we'll figure it out, you know? Just when you mentioned, you know, finding Leonard in Venezuela, it reminds me also, you have an ongoing sort of like, where is Joe Lowe? And you're like getting tips and you're reporting that. And there's part of me that wonders, you guys have now combined a business side of it where you're bringing in other people's stories, assigning them, you're dealing with the IP end of it, which we'll talk about in a second. But also these stories are accruing in a way that you're still tracking them because they are still current. Where do you find time in your day to be like, now is my tracking Jolo time? Well, I probably, me a little bit more than Tom, I have like, I have an unending appetite for things related to Jolo and 1MDB. And so people call us all the time with little things, little stories, whatever it might be. And we just keep collecting them, you know? And, and I think the lucky thing about us as well is we have a really great team at Project Brazen, um, journalists of all different kinds who who are part of the, all those projects. So it's not just me and Tom doing it. You know, we have people who are editing the videos and things like that. But we just, some, some of those stories, you just can't quit them. But also we want to be very connected to our audience. The people who listen to these kinds of stories or read them, we want to stay in touch with them. We want to provide them like an ongoing connection to us and to make them feel part of it. And so this Where is Joe Lowe project is stylistically experimental. It's also kind of a crowdsourced experiment. We know we got a picture literally from this campaign that somebody took of Jolo at Disneyland, which I, I couldn't have asked for a better thing. And that's Disneyland in Shanghai, where he's safe from the US authorities. But so I think that's, you know, that's how we that's how we look at it. So how do you balance now as people who are getting pitched, who are deciding what your company is going to pursue? You mentioned these three imperatives for what type of stories you want to do. But then there's still an entire landscape topic-wise of what you could do. So how do you balance your sort of journalistic imperatives and your business imperatives? Like, how do you figure out where you want to kind of focus your energies and time, given everything that's coming in? Well, I think one of our philosophies is always to be trying things, to embed experiments in projects as well, to go after a project that in a different way. Tom and I talk on the phone all the time and it's, we're constantly debating every little aspect of our strategy, you know, and, and part of that is like, what, what does our portfolio of projects look like? We don't want to do just copycats of the Fat Leonard podcast. We want to be always doing something different to also in the audio space to be pushing it to the edge of the audio entertainment experience. You know, Fat Leonard was our first podcast. Since then, we've done so much more complex production, original music, soundscape design, everything like that. So the other thing we're doing is we're, we're being very data focused. So the good thing about podcasts, again, is there's an enormous amount of data that can be collected on listening habits and what worked and what didn't work. Even more data is available on YouTube videos, for example, when people drop off and that sort of thing. So, you know, we, we have done experiments that didn't work out the way we'd hoped. And we just learned from those as well. So I think in general, we're, we're a little bit skeptical of just jumping into the big story of the day with something that doesn't feel differentiated. So it just needs to have character storytelling. It can't just be, you know, a great topic or an important topic even. It has yeah, to have was, another way in. I, I was going to say that there used to be a, a terminology at the Wall Street Journal of, of important but boring. That was actually like a kind of leader story you'd write on the front page and it would be, I don't know, maybe it would be like Caterpillar 
you had to do like the corporate leader about them and it would be 2,500 words. And it's because there was an audience for that, right? And, and I think that's getting at your question a little bit, which is, you know, there are some things that might serve the public good as journalism, but might not be what we're looking for because, you know, a very important part of our business is the adaptability of the storyline. We're using, it's not all we're doing. We have podcasts that are, that are more uh, always on podcasts that we're focusing more on, on a podcast audience. But a lot of our work is about trying out storylines that can then be adaptable for TV and film. And so when we're looking at like the huge you know, range of things we could be doing, that's at the forefront of our minds. Like Bradley said, we, we, we remain journalists and we, we think part of the, the attraction of our company is that we, we approach it like journalists, but we need to be th- also bridging that gap to the world of TV and film and thinking what kinds of projects are going to work well there. So that helps in our process of deciding what to pick up. And then how do you negotiate the complexities of, if you're thinking about stories for film and TV, but you don't want film and TV to be the driver of your story, you want there to be a journalistic imperative underneath it. But as you get into it, of course, you can see what the angles are and you can see, well, this could or couldn't be adaptable and that's part of your business. But how do you keep the sort of film and TV promise of the story from kind of interfering with the reporting or influencing the reporting in ways that you wouldn't want? Well, I think one of the key things that we're thinking about all the time is here's a story. We, we love doing journalism. We love storytelling. How do we make this a sustainable business? Of course, film and TV is attractive because it's actually a bigger audience than the original version of something. Whenever something can reach a bigger audience, it's more valuable and it could end up covering the cost of like several projects, you know, but we're also putting so much work into thinking through the business of podcasts itself. And we, we now run a network, Project Raisin is a network of shows that are in relationship to each other. And they also represent a number of downloads per month as a whole rather than as an individual feed. So, I mean, we're thinking all the time about how to monetize things appropriately and in part to mitigate some of that risk that you feel like you're just so overexposed to film and television. But also it's important to think as well, when you think of film and television, the derivatives or the adaptations, they're not going to be a carbon copy of the original thing. You know, we have projects where we're making a podcast and we're also making a documentary film and they're really, they feel very different. One's going to be a very audio experience. The other one's going deeper in different ways. And I think the same thing goes for many of our projects is where we're thinking about things in, in an interesting way. Like maybe one project we have, it's in a really fascinating world in an industry. And, and there's something very attractive about that space for a dramatic story. But maybe the derivative of that is actually fictional. It's not really based on the true story of the original. So it's just keeping a very open mind about what you can do with your kind of establishing story and, and, and the different ways you can tell that story. I would say if you're looking at uh, Fat Leonard, just to make it a very specific example, we thought of it, how do we do this? We did have an eye on what the TV adaptation would be when we did it, right? But I don't think it's true these days to say that the journalistically good version of it and the TV adaptation version of it are diametrically opposed. And I think that's maybe because, you know, TV is getting really sophisticated. And if you watch like the playlist that just came out about Spotify, I mean, these are like really good shows that do a lot of, you know, important contextualizing of, of, of these issues that, that whatever, whatever it is that the show is taking on. You know, we made this decision in, in Fat Leonard to foreground the female characters 
the show is now getting adapted by Pete Chiarelli, who's a scriptwriter who wrote Crazy Rich Asians. He'd actually been following the story himself for, for many years. His, his father is a was a four-star general in the army, I think. So he, he was an army brat and he knew, he sort of knew this story and he's currently adapting it. And I think that the podcast and the journalistic work were actually better for the attempt to try to think about what's the most uh, adaptable way to tell this story, right? Because one of the problems, you know, Fat Leonard got arrested in 2013 and people didn't really understand how he got arrested or, you know, we were able to figure out that, that this female character, Marcia Mishevitz, played a, a huge role in that. So, and then, you know, we got thinking about what's the context of how this fraud actually was successful. And it was, it was really to do with the misogyny in the Navy going back all the way to the, you know, as long as history, I think, but it's also back into the, into the tailhook scandal. And so, you know, the, those things were mutually reinforcing, I think, the need for us to tell it in a way that we could sell it. In the, and by the way, we're producing that ourselves for, for TV. We didn't sell it. Brazen is also a production company. But the product as a journalistic product didn't suffer because of that. Yeah, I guess that's a good example because it, it it gets at what I was asking, which is that broke in the in the right direction. But the risk is that people are out there doing stories and they have a hero in their story. And this is supposed to be a hero cop or whatever. And they see the film and TV pro- promise of it. And they think, oh, well, this thing's going to turn into that. And then they find out the unsavory information about their hero and they just either consciously or unconsciously minimize it in the story because they know that it might reduce the promise of the story. So that feels like the, the danger and how do you keep in mind the sort of journalistic principles that you're after to prevent that? Yeah, I think, you know, and also as, you know, as a project we're doing goes along, we may have, changing views about what we think we could do with it to reach that bigger audience. You know, like for, even for example, with Fat Leonard, with Fat Leonard, we also are producing an audiobook version that is going to be sold through Audible and it's going to be more audiobook than podcast. You know, so we're, we're making decisions along the way that mitigates, but we're never going to touch the journalism. That's just a core principle for us. And in fact, I would say probably based on our careers, those unexpected revelations about characters are actually what makes them work. You know, like th- th- that's what makes it interesting. If your character does what's expected in like a kind of cliched Hollywood approach, I almost think it makes it less compelling, you know? Yeah. Uh, looking at your business, I mean, you guys have a lot going on right now. So you've got newsletters, you've got podcasts, and the podcasts are different types of podcasts. Also, Bradley wrote a book. You're doing YouTube videos. You've got a mini documentary. To what extent are these like you're trying things out and kind of seeing how they work? And then you'll you'll stick with them versus you want to be in every medium all the time. And that's kind of your goal. I think, I mean, everything we do is so geared towards finding out what works, you know. So we love having a newsletter. We have a couple of other newsletters besides whale hunting. And the idea behind those was to kind of like lay the groundwork or build the audience before the podcast comes out. So I think, you know, each one of those is an experiment. If it turns out to not be worth the time and effort, maybe we won't do that in the future for that project. You know, we already, we've we've realized that doing really complex, expensive video trailers for podcasts is pointless. We've just seen the data. It doesn't result in anything. So we've changed approach based there. So everything we're doing is about testing things out. That We have a big podcast coming out on Monday called Karina and the King. It's our biggest marketing experiment 
to date. So we, we made the podcast in two languages and they're being released simultaneously. We, we took a very like edgy approach to the design, but we also, we had a big launch party here in London at the Groucho Club where we gave out a perfume that was designed for the podcast. And then in Spain, we're currently running a kind of almost like a joke advertisement campaign on Twitter and Instagram and Google that looks like a fashion line, including this perfume. But you can tell instantly that it's kind of a joke and it leads you into the podcast. So we're, we're constantly trying to think through how do you break through, even if we have the most amazing story and you put it out in the world, it doesn't mean anyone's going to listen to it. Either you have that massive distribution system where people just automatically tune in because you're, you're in that distribution system or you find a way to break through the noise. So that's the way I think about it is we're, we're doing things that are fun for us, things that we like, things that we might like to consume if we were on the other side. But also we're tracking the data and figuring out what works. You use the word fun there. And a lot of reporters, they spend their lives as reporters. They love reporting. They can't stand things like marketing, trying to get people to listen to or watch their stories, managing other people. I'm wondering where you guys are at with that kind of stuff. Like, How do you feel about being business people, dealing with all these other aspects in contrast to being a reporter who works at a Wall Street Journal where you write a story and you put it out and like a bunch of people are going to read it because it's in the Wall Street Journal? Well, I think it's it's a mixed question because in some ways, probably neither Tom and I could have ever told you that we would enjoy the creativity that you need in business itself, the creativity in marketing. Neither one of us ever discussed these things before we set out to create Project Brazen. But in fact, I find it immensely enjoyable and in some ways satisfying in ways that I just didn't know I could be satisfied. On the other hand, neither one of us likes to get lost in the weeds of, of the administration of a business. And we found some ways to kind of subcontract that, but it is still, you know, it's a chore. But to be honest, even that as a chore isn't really the major thing. The major thing that weighs on us all the time is we've created a business and we've created a lifestyle of journalism that we just don't want to quit. This is what we want to do. And the people who are working with us feel the same way. They want to keep doing this. So we feel the pressure of needing to succeed in order to keep this going. And that's that's probably the part that's the hardest thing we have to experience. You know, when you when you work in a newspaper, you don't, or even a magazine or whatever, you don't think about really the marketing of it, right? Or any of that, the business side is kept away from you. I mean, in fact, when we when we wrote Billion Dollar Whale, I think when we started covering 1MDB, we lost a, the Wall Street Journal, a big advertising campaign from the Malaysian government. So you know, oh, really? and that was like a, yeah, I think it was some, maybe it was a tourism campaign or something. It was like a big full page ad, ad spread campaign. And, you know, the journal's great. They're like, well, so be it. That's just what happens. But now we have to think about everything we do in terms of, you know, we're putting down money on making podcasts and that's a risk, right, that we're taking, you know, the money that we raised. So we should say that Brazen is, is, has remained independent because we raised a bunch of money in, the, in our Brazen content fund from our investors and we use that and we distribute via PRX. So we have a very uh, independent system. But, you know, the onus is on us to make everything remunerable. And so we do have to think about marketing and Bradley's kind of probably better at it than I am. Um, but, you know, this Karina and the King that is coming out on Monday, the coverage is, in, I think we're in the Daily Mail today, a major coverage in the Times of London. And uh, I think it's been over 500 items in the Spanish press covering it. And so that's even, you know, three or four days out before it's, before it's launching. And so partly that's just a good selection of topic. You know, Bradley's great skill in getting people to talk to him, which is paying off in this case, which is Karina of the title Karina and the King. 
and you know some serendipity so you know those things all sort of come together i mean that brings me also to bradley your most recent book the rebel in the kingdom how much are you willing to oversee other people's projects versus you want to be doing your own reporting you want to have your own reporting projects i i think there's a an urge in us to always have a project or several projects but in truth i enjoy overseeing someone else's project in some ways just as much as I have putting out my own projects. You know, we have a couple of projects that are under development right now that will be coming out next year. And there's there's putting the team together to make those podcasts, finding the right producer, the right host, having the right strategy for the uncovering of the details. We're still heavily involved, but we're kind of like in a way happy for, for other people to succeed under the brazen umbrella. So I think we'll always have each of us a couple of big projects that we're incubating and overseeing more directly. And then we'll also have a, probably a larger number of projects that are part of our network. Speaking of big projects, I do want to touch on the Rebel in the Kingdom for a second just as an illustration of how these reporting projects come about. So explain how you originally came across the main character there, who, just to summarize, is this young guy of Korean descent who grows up in America and eventually makes it his mission to basically start a revolution inside North Korea, including breaking into the North Korean embassy in Spain. So how did you find this guy? Well, in 2011, I was in Libya during the Arab Spring, and I was kind of like a little bit late to the civil war. Like most people were already there. There's there's people from Al Jazeera like embedded for the liberation of Tripoli. But I kind of came a little bit late on a world food program to Benghazi when Benghazi was completely quiet. (laughs) So every day I would take a a car as far as I could go. It would be four hours on the road to get the closest I could to real action. And it wasn't still wasn't much going on there. But one day I was there and I found this this young kid called Chris Jun. He was 18 years old, wearing a Lakers jersey with a shotgun, and he didn't speak a word of Arabic. And he had joined the Rebels for his spring break. And I, I wrote a story about it. It's probably my most successful story to date, you know, which is this happens to journalists, uh, unfortunately, which is, you know, your, your dumbest story is your most successful story. But as a result of that article... This guy wrote me called Adrian Hong, and um, he was really mysterious, you know, he, and, and I, later on I met him and I still couldn't quite figure out, like, who is this guy? You know, is, is he a spy? Is he a businessman? Is he a thrill seeker? And, and I kept meeting this guy over many years, and I, I grew to understand he was devoted to North Korea and kind of posing as an activist, but he seemed so much edgier than an activist. And um, we would meet. We, we, we got along. We had a really good sentiment toward each other, but he never told me anything. <laughs> so it was like, a, it was kind of like a journalistic relationship without a payout, but I just kept it going. And um, because I liked the guy. And then one day I looked on Twitter and there was a wanted poster from the US Marshal Service saying that Adrian Hong wanted armed and dangerous, you know, for, for crimes against, you know, in Spain, against the North Korean embassy. And I was completely dumbfounded because I was like, ah, I knew there was something about that guy, you know? <laughs> and, and, and ironically, I had even texted him when I read about this North Korean embassy in Spain thing saying, oh, you must know about this because this is like your world. And he just kind of wrote back like, yeah, crazy story, you know. And then, of course, it turned out he was the mastermind of the whole thing. So um, I, I clearly didn't pick up on all the clues. But to be honest, I was I became obsessed with the story because it, it was the first time I kind of really felt something about a major story I've worked on. You know, both Billion Dollar Whale and Blood and Oil were fascinating and, and dangerous and edgy and everything, but they, I didn't feel something emotionally. But in this case, there was there was a lot of tragedy because this group that Adrian had created, I knew instantly that he wasn't armed and dangerous. That was a complete like false line. And, and that was the kind of impetus for me 
how could that come to pass that someone like him would be a global fugitive, you know, from the Spanish and, and by proxy, the U.S. authorities. And so the book really was me spending almost three years talking to everyone I could about this organization, literally unearthing every digital clue. And to understand, basically, this was a, a kind of almost like a radicalization uh, of an activist to take direct action against something they felt so strongly about. Um, and I, I was even inspired by stories about people like the abolitionist John Brown, people who did things that were considered a little bit too much, but for a good cause. And, and I think there's an element of that in this case, too. But it's, it's such a fascinating story, in, in large part because this underground organization he created was mostly made up of like straight A yuppies who went to Ivy League schools. And like on the weekends, they were sort of volunteering for an underground organization, rescuing diplomats from Europe, staging fake deaths, fake kidnappings, things like that to get these guys out. And I don't know, I just found it such a compelling story, more compelling than any spy story I've ever worked on. That brings me to a thing that I'm always curious about. I mean, that was the thing that was so interesting about the book is how long you had spent sort of cultivating this relationship, having no idea where it was going or it wasn't really going anywhere. How many people like that do you guys have around, you know, that you're just sort of like, yeah, I, I talk to this guy every month. He's like an ex-spy, ex-cop, ex-this, or involved in this, but nothing ever comes of it. But someday something will come of it. Like how, how much of this is going on in your ordinary lives? You know, I honestly think that the seed of every story we do can be found in the previous project. So Billion Dollar Whale, that's how I got interested in Saudi Arabia. There was a Saudi Arabian angle. There was a Saudi Arabian figure that ended up being a big figure in Blood and Oil. He took on MBS. So he first he was committed to this fraud with Joe Liu. Then, then his next act was to kind of go up against MBS. Even, even the Karina and the King Project, you'll see from the, the last episode, there's a very important connection for us, for how we came to that case by 1MDB and by Saudi Arabia, because it, it ended up, there was a person that had a, a role in all three, you know? So I think we're always tugging on a new line that we discover on the previous story, or maybe even five lines, you know? Do you, have you found any more difficulty in sort of getting people to take your calls now that you're independent? Like you don't have the big name that you drop when you ring someone up? I mean, I don't think so. I, I, I honestly think it's just how you kind of position yourself. In this case, if we, we were to call someone up, we could say we were we were journalists at the Wall Street Journal and now we run this company and we've done this and that. I mean, it's you want to have credibility. Probably we're not trying to do breaking news and we don't need a statement on deadline. You know, I think if we tried to do that, we would fail. But in the case of the kinds of work we're doing, I think we're in some ways even better positioned than we were in the newspaper because we, we are truly that we, we answer to no one. And I think as a result, we, we can bring a lot of credibility to a conversation with somebody. So last question, what do you think this looks like in like five or 10 years to the extent that anything in media can be looked at five or 10 years in advance at this point? But are you guys feel like you're mostly flying by the seat of your pants? Or are you like, you have this like five or 10 year vision where this is where we want this to be. And this is where we expect this to be at some point. I think we're both flying by the seat of our pants and we have a vision. I think that's the best way of putting it. I mean, you know, you're flying by the seat of your pants because you have to be able to pivot to what's working. And, and, and you know, some maybe some of the shows that we've thought about, maybe they're too cerebral or they're not what people are looking for at the moment. And, um, you know, you really need to tap into the zeitgeist. So definitely need to stay nimble and, and not be too doctrinaire about like what kinds of projects you do. But in what we look like in five years, I think we would be, 
well, we would have had, we've got four films and TV shows in development at the moment. So those will have come out, um, been successful, built our reputation as, as producers of great narrative nonfiction across the podcast world, books, TV and film. And so that's what we're really looking to do. And we would be much bigger than we are now in that we will have um, used our track record to attract some of the best writers in the world to pitch to us, to work with us. We're extremely creative friendly. We give great deals. We are ourselves journalists and writers, and we want to collaborate with other journalists and writers to get that stuff and get and to get it made efficiently and effectively. So that's that's our vision for Project Brazen. Yeah, and I'll just add that like for me, I just want to create a structure where any entrepreneurial, even just entrepreneurial creator, not just journalist, creator, can essentially bolt into our network and and find access to a lot of knowledge that we learned through a lot of mistakes and experiments that showed what works and what doesn't work. And so that people don't have to worry about all that. If, if every journalist had to create a new company every time they want to do something entrepreneurial, it would be too too much of a slog. You know, and I want I want to be able to be the place where those people can, can, can bring that stuff. And I also would like to, us to be really multidisciplinary. You know, I want to see graphic novels, nonfiction books that were based on podcast projects, documentaries, film, television, everything. And I, I want to be really active in all those places. We don't see ourselves as a podcast company. We see ourselves as a journalism company or a storytelling company. Well, thanks you both for coming on the show. And, uh, and good luck with all of it. That's a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to Bradley Hope and Tom Wright for coming on. Their very latest stuff is the podcast. Kareen and the King is out now. And Bradley's book is called The Rebel and the Kingdom. You can get them both now. Our editor this week was Gabrielle Saldivia. Our show notes are by Megan Valley. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.